that Acts chapter 1 is known for the very last words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And these are his words. And you, my followers, will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In an ever-widening circle, starting here but going throughout the world, you are to take my message nearby and far away. But wait for the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to chapter 2. That's the birth of the church. That's when the Holy Spirit comes in a fantastic way, gives birth to the church. That's why we're here today. And in that same chapter, Peter gives his first message ever. And many, many, many people turn to God through faith in Jesus. That's chapter 2. Now we can sort of put chapters 3 and 6 together. Um, it's, it's really the story of the expansion of the church the, the Jesus followers are still in Jerusalem and in the immediate surrounding area, but things are really beginning to cook. Things are really beginning to happen. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ, and the church is growing so much that the disciples who were given charge to teach the Word of God don't have the time or the ability to take care of the people who have very practical needs. And so with wisdom, they identify seven guys who can be in charge of meeting those practical needs. That takes us into chapter 6, and, and one of those guys chosen is a, is a man by the name of Stephen, who was known for wisdom and power and grace, and he was absolutely unafraid to talk about Jesus, even in front of the Jewish rulers. Well, it gets him a little bit of hot water. And then he gets taken in front of what's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish religious um, community. And uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, this is now in chapter 7, he gives a speech. It's a marvelous speech. If you want to know a little bit of the history of Israel, read that chapter. And, and as he talks about God's hand is on the people of Israel, God's hand is on the Jewish people, God guides them through history. You can just sense the the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, nodding, yes, we are the ones that God's hand is on. But then later on in chapter 7, Stephen steps over the line a little bit, and he says, but you stiff-necked people, that's where he got in trouble, you stiff-necked people, God sent his prophet, he sent his Messiah, who is Jesus, and you killed him. <laughs> well, they had had enough. They rushed Stephen dragged him out of the city, and had him stoned to death. Those who were stoning Stephen wanted a, a little bit more wind-up space, and so they took off their outer clothes and laid them at the, the feet of a man by the name of Saul. And this is where we pick his, up his name for the very first time at the end of chapter 7. Now, whenever I mention Saul today, and maybe you know this, that was his Hebrew name. Now, Later on, after his encounter with Jesus, after he was commissioned by Jesus, he went on to have a ministry with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Greeks. And so he would take on his Greek name, which was Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he would go on to write a third of the New Testament. Chapter 8 begins like this. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now, that's at the very beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 8 continues without mentioning Saul at all. It's really about the spread of the church under the heels of persecution. Somebody once said, the person of the church, the persecution of the church is sort of like stepping on a tomato. The seeds go everywhere. And this is what we see happen in chapter 8. The church goes everywhere under the heels of persecution. Maybe you know that the church in China today is so big as the result of early persecution. Maybe you know, and Iran is so much in the news, but but, uh, few people know that because of the persecution there, the seeds are going everywhere and the church is growing rapidly in Iran. And so this is what we see in chapter 8. The church is starting to go everywhere. Now, Saul is going to arrive in chapter 9, but I can just imagine him in the background stewing, wondering, strategizing, how can I stop this spread of Christianity? Now, what we're about to read in chapter 9 is the story of his encounter with Jesus. He retells it again in Acts chapter 22 and 26. You might want to read there sometime. But in this story that we're about to read, we're going to read it in three parts. And I think each part leads us to a question that I think we can try to answer. So this is how chapter 9 begins. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Let me just stop there for a moment. The, 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 what I imagine is something like, uh, do you know Victor Hugo's story, Les Miserables? And the, the character of Javert, who relentlessly, obsessively pursues Jean Valjean. Do you know that story? That's sort of the... That's sort of the the mindset that Saul had where he was just relentlessly pursuing these Jesus followers. Wouldn't let anyone stop him. It goes on. So he went to the high priest in Jerusalem and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus, that's 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And the reason he went there is because Damascus was a major trading city with major trading routes. And if if the message of Jesus gets there, who knows which way it can go throughout the world. And so Saul makes his way to Damascus. The story continues. He's asking for their cooperation in the rest of any followers of the way he found there. They weren't even called Christians yet at that time. It was just simply called the way. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Let's stop there. I think a question we can ask is simply this. How does God bring 
someone to himself. Let me start this way. Over the last month, I've been in conversation with some missionaries, some mission groups that the chapel's connected with around the world. And I asked them, do you see this kind of thing? Dreams and visions and miracles, bringing people to faith in Jesus. And I got responses from all over the world. Uh, our friend connected with Send International sent this story from the, there's so many stories, I can't read them all. I'll read a couple to you. I even had to edit these down just to give you the basic understanding of what happened. This is from the Philippines. A formerly Muslim man was a university student, very poor, and so lived at the local mosque near the campus. He was instructed by the local imam, which is the Muslim religious leader, to infiltrate the student Christian ministry on campus and convince other Muslims not to go near the Christians. One morning when he was cooking breakfast, a radiant person walked out of the jungle towards him and instructed him to learn about Jesus from the student ministry leader. Eventually, long story short, eventually he became a devout follower of Jesus and has led many others to faith in Jesus. And that story just goes on and on and on. Here, here's a story from Kazakhstan. Do you know that country? It's just south of Russia, just west of Mongolia. A Muslim named Nuran had a wife who had already uh, turned in repentance and faith to follow Jesus, and he mocked her. And then he got terribly sick, but then he got better and said to his wife, Look, see what I have done without your God's help? Instantly, he became paralyzed. He had many moments to reflect. His wife explained who Jesus was, the Son of God who came to save him from his sin, and he mocked her even more, and he ripped up her Bible. As he lay in the hospital bed, he felt he was dying, and he began to ask forgiveness from anyone he could think of. He was about to ask Allah, the Muslim God, when the room filled with light, and he saw Jesus standing in the room with a sword. And Jesus told him to repent and believe, and he did. Jesus told him to stand up and walk, and he did. And both he and his wife follow Jesus today and are his witnesses. Many other stories came in. Uh, have you read the, the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus? In the last five years, it's maybe one of the best books I've ever read. It's so easily read. It's by Nabil Qureshi, once a Muslim. And in the book, he talks about a friend who was just a solid witness for Jesus with him, but it wasn't enough. It took dreams and visions that finally helped him step over the line of faith. Some, some say, research shows, up to a third of Muslims around the world, when they make a decision to leave Islam and to follow Jesus, it was a dream or a vision or a miracle. It was pivotal in their decision. Now that's just Islam. <laughs> I, I got notes from Burundi, from India, from Mexico, where the word of God has not yet been translated into these indigenous languages yet. And, and you know, dreams and, and visions and miracles are not uncommon where Jesus is not known, where the Bible is not readily available, where there are not churches, where persecution is. It's not uncommon to hear stories like that. Now, of course, there's lots of precedents in the Bible. We could start with, with Abraham. I mean, God got the attention of, of so many people through Scripture, got their attention, called them to do something, called them to himself. There's Abraham, and you could run all the way up through Daniel in the Old Testament. Many, many stories of 
dreams and visions and miracles. And then you come to the New Testament. Maybe you know those stories better. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and then Joseph, and then um, the, the wise men, the magi, and the shepherds in the field, and there's Pilate's wife, and there's Cornelius, and then there's John who writes all of Revelation based upon a vision. Miraculous things. And then, of course, that brings us to Saul. Now, for Saul, the story we just read, it, it wasn't a dream or a vision. It was the actual presence of Jesus Christ himself, which then, later, Paul would write, qualified him to be what was called an apostle, an official um, emissary of Jesus. But it was this experience, Saul would explain, is the very thing that led him from unbelief to belief. That, that helped him to see the, the depth of his sin and the shallowness of his own unrighteousness. That led him from death to life, from darkness to light. And that's Saul. Now, here we are in the United States. We don't hear those stories very much. Some of you might have a story like that, a very sensational story like that. But not very often. We have churches on every corner. We have Bibles in every variety you can imagine. We're not being persecuted. And nevertheless, people are having encounters with Jesus all the time. You could tell your story. The other night, I, I sat with our team that is going to Cuba to serve, to, to, to meet the need of clean water, but also to share Jesus. Sixteen of them gathered in a room. And, and one of the things we did, did to help them get to know each other was they told their they told their abridged version of their own encounter with Jesus, and not one of them mentioned a dream or a vision or a miracle. And yet, it was real. How does God bring someone to himself? How? It begins with the Spirit of God getting our attention in some way. When I was age 20, I went to the funeral of a friend and walked out, started thinking about the brevity of life and eternity. That caught me. For others, it's, the, it's being enamored with creation. For others, it's a tragedy or a loss and it presses them toward God. For others, it's just the, the reasoning ability that God has given you. Of course there must be a God. On and on and on, God gets our attention in some way. And then the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that that gave life to the church 2,000 years ago, the same Spirit that breathed life into Saul, the same Spirit of God who woos and hounds the Muslims and Hindus and animists around the world and brings them to himself, that same Spirit of God gives you and me the grace to believe. And then we must choose. Do I believe or not? Later on, Paul would go on to write, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you had your encounter with Jesus? Some people have had amazing, sensational encounters with Jesus. Dreams, visions, whatever. And others, their story like mine was much more mundane. But let me say this. Whether it's sensational or mundane, it's just as miraculous. Because God takes what is spiritually dead and breathes life into it and brings us from death to life and darkness to light. That's how God brings us to himself, whatever it takes. And then we must choose. The story continues. 
Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see. But Lord, gulp exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and the kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here's a question I think we can try to answer. Who does God bring to himself? Maybe 15, maybe 20 years ago, when I was at another church, our church was much like this church. If someone calls in and, and wants a funeral performed, even if they have no affiliation with the church, we will do our best to provide that service and, and conduct that funeral service for the loved one. And so I was chosen to meet with this family I could only meet with them two hours before the actual service was to begin, so I sat with the family. Their, their uh, 50 plus year old son, father, and so on had passed away. Let's call him Bob for lack of a better name. I can't remember. Bob had no religious affiliation, Bob had no church affiliation. They had nothing to say about Bob and God and Jesus. And I thought, well, if you don't say anything, I'll say something. I'll put something into the service. But tell me something about Bob. And they could hardly tell me anything. So I did not know what to say in this service. So then they said, tell you what, why don't you ask those present if anyone there would like to come up and say something about Bob? Well, now that can go really well. Or that can go south on you. And so the service began, and I said, would anyone here like to come up and say something about Bob? And so this lady came up, and she began to share, I got to know Bob at the bar. Nobody could drink like Bob. Nobody could party like Bob. Bob was there about every night. And, we, and she just went on and on and on. And I'm thinking, okay, where do we go with this? She went and sat down, and then a guy comes up, and he starts to share. Bob and I were best friends. We raised hell together. We went out, and we partied, and then and all of this, and just went on and on and on. And it was just, now what do I do? Does anybody else have anything to say about Bob? A guy in the back in a wheelchair begins to wheel forward down the center aisle. He has, a, he has a black leather vest on with patches all over it and long stringy hair. And I realize I've just judged a book by its cover. He wheels around and he faces the, kind, the, uh, the, the people present. And he said, you know, and I'm making this short, a few years ago, I realized my life was going nowhere. And then I realized that God loved me. And I gave my life to Christ. I put my faith in Jesus. And I want you to know 
that the day before Bob died, I went to visit him at the hospital. And I shared with Bob how he could know God. How he could know God's forgiveness through placing his faith in Jesus. How he could have a place in eternity. And Bob prayed with me and asked forgiveness. And I want to tell you today, today, Bob is with God in heaven. And he went and sat down. And I looked at the people there, and they were all, their eyes said what I was thinking. Now that's amazing. Are you kidding me? Didn't see that coming. Nobody saw that coming. Somebody so unlikely. Somebody, somebody so apparently unreachable. It's like the thief on the cross. Or like so many other stories through Scripture. It's amazing. You know, we, think, we talk about Abraham at times, the father of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. But Abraham had done nothing special. He grew up in a pagan family, a part of an idol-worshiping family, yet God chose him. There's Rahab, the Gentile uh, prostitute, pagan. <laughs> There's Joseph, the precocious, prideful young man that God used to save Israel. We could go on and on and on into the New Testament. Jesus chooses 12 incredibly unlikely guys to change the world and then just to speak of the people that Jesus hung out with. We could go through the Bible and choose person after person after person, unreachable, unlikely. Are you kidding me? Didn't see that coming. Story after story. And then, of course, there's Saul. Wow. Didn't see that coming. Nobody saw that coming. Especially Ananias. After studying this passage, I think Ananias is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's like an unsung hero. Probably trying to escape persecution. Shows up in Damascus. And the Lord finds him and says, Ananias, I want you to go see Saul. Go. What? Lord, you realize he is a bad dude. He takes people like me and throws us into prison. He takes people like me and allows us to be killed just because we call on your name. Now, if you read between the lines in Ananias' words, this is, what he's saying. this is what he's saying. There is no way someone like him could make that kind of turnaround. There is no way someone like him could go from unbelief to belief. There is no way. And yet he does. Um, Saul's an interesting study. He, he sort of represents the spectrum of humanity. If, if you think of the, the spectrum of humanity as, as, as like down here, the, the worst of the worst, and over here, the, the, the best of the best, Saul kind of covers the spectrum. Because here, um, wouldn't you agree, is someone who hounds women and men because of what they believe, because they believe differently than you, and has them thrown in the prison and allows them to be killed, wouldn't you consider that to be a really bad guy? Worst of the worst. But on the other hand, best of the best. Over in the, in the letter to Philippians, he, he says, I was the Jew among Jews. I was a Pharisee above Pharisees. I did my very best to keep the law of God. 
if there was anyone people in his society aspired to be like, it would be Saul. So where do you find yourself on this spectrum? When I was age 20, that's when I gave my life to Christ and began my journey with Jesus. And I was probably more down at this end of the spectrum. I had never murdered anybody, never robbed a bank. I wasn't down there. Maybe you find yourself here too. You're a good person and maybe better. And, or maybe you have a checkered past and things you're ashamed of and you do see yourself down here. Paul would go on to write later on that no matter where you are in this spectrum, the worst of the worst or the best of the best, we're still not where God calls us to be. He says we all have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And the beauty is that, and this is the gospel, that God sent Jesus to cover the gap that exists between the worst of the worst and God, the gap that exists between the best of the best and God. I just want to ask you, has your gap been covered? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. Some years ago at our other church, I remember a moment, I can't remember all the details, just the generalities, but there was a guy in the community. There was a guy in the community who, maybe you know someone like this, had it all together. And whenever I talked to him about church or Christianity, you could just see the glaze go over his eyes and kind of his nose go up and, I don't need that, thank you very much. He's the kind of guy who would say something like this. If I ever walked into your church, the roof would cave in. Have you ever met someone like that? Maybe you used to think that. And then there was that Sunday morning. I looked up, and I see him there. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, but I should have. Because that's what God specializes in. And maybe right now, you might be thinking of someone Maybe you're thinking of yourself. Maybe you consider yourself unreachable. God can reach anybody. Or maybe you're thinking of a family member, a son or a daughter, a husband, a wife, or a coworker or a neighbor. You think there's no way. Oh, yeah? Who does God bring to himself? The unreachables and the unlikelies. We just need to be there for them. Which brings us to the rest of the story. It was like this. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Now there's more to this story we could read, but let's stop there. And let's try to answer this question. Why does God bring someone to himself? Why is that? 
I just recently finished a, a little book. I'd heard about this man for a long time, and I wanted to read one of his books. His name is Viktor Frankl. He's referenced in a lot of other books. Viktor Frankl uh, was a Jewish Holocaust survivor. He's gone now. He survived Auschwitz and a number of other camps, was finally liberated in early 1945. In his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about just surviving. How did he survive? Partly because he understood the meaning that comes with suffering, but also he began to, uh, he was also a psychiatrist. He was able to help out, so he survived this camp. When they were liberated, of course, they enjoyed the liberation, enjoyed the freedom, but he then realized he was faced with a question, as were the other prisoners. We are free, but now what is our responsibility? Because with freedom comes responsibility. The other night, my wife and I were watching a, a, a movie, and featured in this movie at one, in one scene was, was the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, both symbols of freedom, both symbols of responsibility. Freedom and responsibility are two sides of the same coin, aren't they? <laughs> Maybe you're in school, or you remember back when you were in school, and finally you left school. Freedom! Oh yeah, now responsibility. Or you're raised in a family, and you're just ready to move on, right? Freedom! Oh yeah, responsibility. Freedom and responsibility. You, you can't read any of Paul's letters, one-third of the New Testament, without getting the feel for freedom. In fact, in his very first letter to the Galatians, the entire theme is freedom. And at one point he even says, for freedom you have been set free. As Christians, we should celebrate that. We are freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the practice of sin. We can Live for God. We're free to live for God. That is a joy. But you also can't read Paul's letters without understanding there is responsibility that comes with our freedom. Why has God brought us to himself? To give us freedom, but to give us responsibility. But I ask you, what is that responsibility? Now, we could go down a myriad of trails answering that question. What is our responsibility? What I'd like to do is this is stay with the passage we're looking at and stay with the context of the book of Acts, which begins like this and sets the theme for the entire book of Acts and for the entire church and for us where Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, as we think about the story of Saul, what happens? He gets baptized, and the very first thing he does, he goes and tells people about Jesus, the Son of God. He takes on that responsibility of doing the very thing Jesus told him, told us to do. He is a witness. Somebody the other day said, what is a witness? A witness is someone who represents Jesus with their life and with their words. And if you are a Christ follower, you are to be a witness. That's a, why has God brought us to himself? To give us freedom, to give us responsibility, so that more and more people can have their opportunity to have 
an encounter with Jesus. One day, Christ will come again. Between this day and that day, we enjoy our freedom, but we take on our responsibility. Somebody once made this observation that the early church was like a beehive in reverse. Does that make sense? You know, bees go out and they get the pollen and they bring it back, and so they have food when they need it. But the church is in reverse. We gather together and we receive God's word. And then we take what is true out into our community where we work and live and play. And in an ever-widening circle, yes, we're responsible for those who have not yet heard in Mexico or Burundi or India or places around the world. But, but what about the places where God has put you right now? Where God has sovereignly placed you right now? Where you work and live and play? And maybe you even have someone in mind. How does God bring us to himself? Whatever it takes by his spirit. Who does God bring to himself? The person you may have in mind, the unreachables, the unlikelies. And why does God bring us to himself? To give us freedom. To give us responsibility. And that makes us the church. That makes us Christ followers. That makes us obedient to Jesus. Let's pray together. And now, Father, thank you for the opportunity to um, learn from your word. Personally, I want to thank you once again for reaching into my life at age 20 and turning me toward yourself. That was your work. On behalf of those here who have experienced the same thing, thank you for doing that. For those here who maybe have never really turned to you, I pray that you would give the wisdom, the power, and the strength to do just that. It takes humility, God. Provide that, I pray. Bring more people to yourself. Help us as a church to, to be the kind of church that represents you out in the community as your witnesses with our lives and the, with our words. Like Paul, unafraid, unafraid to talk about Jesus. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.